This is Judaism Unbound, episode 10, Deuteronomy. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. And we're here in episode 10, the last episode in our opening series where we've tried to lay out a new lens that we can start to use to reflect on the Jewish present and also think about the Jewish future. We really started in episode one by laying out that what we want this podcast to be about is what we call Ipramistabra, this opposite thinking, right? That whether or not we're right, the idea is that we want in this podcast to try to present a view of the Jewish world from a certain perspective that may not be the perspective that the Jewish world usually thinks about itself with. So we're excited to spend today reflecting back on what we've heard, trying to put together the pieces of the lens that we're using, and then look forward to the future of this podcast. And what we ultimately want to lay out there is that we think it's healthy for there to be a number of different hypotheses out there about what's going on in the Jewish world today and and how we should go about planning for the future so that we really have a rich landscape from which to think about it and not just a single point of view. So Lex, I'm wondering, as you look back on our first nine episodes, whether there were things that struck you in particular that you really think kind of are important as we start to weave together this tapestry. So we had four guests and I'll, I'll name them again in case folks weren't able to listen to all their episodes or just as a reminder, but there was Rabbi Vinay Lappi, there was uh, Professor Vanessa Oaks, uh, also an ordained rabbi, there was Professor Barack Richman, and there was Dan Mendelssohn Aviv. And when I look back on all of our conversations, there was a lot of diversity, but one major theme kept on creeping into the picture, and that was the question of who is the Jewish community. And even in your intro, you mentioned the Jewish world. And we differentiated a number of times in a number of different episodes between the institutions of Judaism as we know it in 21st century American Jewish life and the Jews. And I think that one of my biggest takeaways that I had thought about before, but really not internalized in such a big way, is that those are fundamentally different and when we think about the Jewish community as what the institutions of Judaism are doing and saying, we do something that is very dangerous. We, we assume that those who are not involved with the Jewish institutions are in effect not involved with Judaism entirely. And we almost count them as less Jewish. It, it, like what they think and what they do isn't really representative of Judaism for sure. And even of what the Jewish opinion is. And, and that leads to some really dangerous conclusions. And it leads us to sort of continue a vicious cycle of following what institutions are used to, because even when there's dissent outside of those institutions, it's almost as if a non-citizen of the United States tried to assert a change in American law. It wouldn't make sense. You have to be in our institutions. So that theme came up a number of times with Professor Oaks, with Barack Richmond, and also with Dan Mendelson of Eve. And I forget 
whether it came up with Bene Lappy, but I think it's an important one. Yeah, Lex, I really agree with what you're saying. It reminds me of episode four, where we talked about Albert Hirschman's book, Exit Voice and Loyalty, with the basic idea that to exit something can be seen as a form of dissent as opposed to some kind of form of abandonment. And that when we see the people who are not participating in Jewish institutions, we really ought to, or at least there's a, a valid point of view that sees them as expressing a form of dissent where they're not saying that they don't care about Judaism. What they're fundamentally saying is, I'm not on board with the kind of Judaism that's being uh, offered by these institutions. And rather than looking at, let's say, the real Judaism as the Judaism that's being offered by the institutions and saying, okay, well, maybe they need to change it a little in order to attract those folks who have uh, left the institutions. We, we could actually look at it in the opposite way and say the real Judaism is fundamentally found among the majority of Jews. And it's not that the Judaism of the institutions is not the real Judaism. It is a real Judaism for the Jews that are participating in those institutions. But there's also a real Judaism or a number of real Judaisms that are implicit in the world of the non-participants in institutions. And the question is, could a new set of institutions come to be that would organize a Judaism that would actually be seen as valuable and resonant and meaningful for those Jews. And I'm thinking a lot about a reaction that I had to the story that Vanessa Oakes was telling us about her own synagogue or, or small havara within the synagogue that was uh, rescheduling the Purim celebration to a day that was not Purim. And that raises all kinds of interesting issues in its own right. But the thing that I keep coming back to and thinking about is the realization that hit me as she was describing that, that what was going on was that the younger people in her synagogue are thinking about holidays like Americans think about holidays and not like, quote, Jews think about holidays. Now, I, I worry about setting it up that way because my whole point is to say that the way that American Jews who are not or who are less affiliated with organizations think is still a Jewish way. So I don't quite know how to describe this, right? But, but my point is, is that the dominant idea of how holidays work that is the beginning point of the thinking of these folks is the way that America schedules holidays as opposed to the 2000 or, or whatever long year tradition of how Judaism schedules holidays. Now, I, I, I think it's worth noting, even historically, that, for example, the uh, names of the Jewish months, the quote Jewish months, are actually the names of the Babylonian months. Many of the Jewish months are named after Babylonian gods. So the idea is that the Jewish calendar and the way the Jewish calendar works has changed over time in profound ways. Um, and not only has it changed in profound ways, but it's changed in profound ways that are obviously syncretistic with another religion in the sense that our our months are named after, quote, foreign gods. The reason I, I bring all that up is just to say that historically, we have a lot of things in Judaism today that we think of as these clearly Jewish ways of talking and of thinking and of organizing that came from the surrounding societies that the Jews lived in 
you know, 2000 or so years ago. So the idea that we would bring an American way of thinking about holidays into Judaism today really is not foreign to the development of Judaism. But in any event, what struck me was that the Jews who are less tied to Jewish institutions and to sort of traditional Jewish conceptualizations are actually bringing their, in this case, American point of view into Judaism in ways that strike people that are very deeply ensconced in Jewish institutions as somehow wrong and and strange. But I think that we have to understand that the notion that these holidays can only take place on this particular day because the day itself is sacred and yada, 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 sounds equally strange and foreign to the people that are not connected to the institutions as strongly. And so the question in my mind basically is like, what is true? You know, what is the real Judaism? And I think it's too easy to say that the real Judaism is the thing that's coming from the perspective of the institutions. That's not true to our history. And I'm not sure that that is a point of view that makes sense in the present. And then you kind of look at the, you look at it and say, okay, well, what's going to happen? And it, 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 you know, either the institutions will never understand that, never accept it, and never really change, and then those people will drift even further away. Or the people themselves will organize and create something new from from their perspective. And that takes a gargantuan effort and, and a lot of uh, inspiration, and that's not all that likely either. So in a sense, the most likely scenario is that those people will drift further and further away and ultimately become what I think the institutions fear they already are, which is completely uninterested in being Jewish. But I don't think that that has to happen. One piece I want to expand on that you mentioned is what your discussion of the Babylonian months and how our Jewish months stem from, the, the names of them stem from Babylonian mouths. The reason you brought that up and the reason why we're emphasizing facts like that is not to bum you out. It's not to send a message of, oh, I thought these months were really special and unique to us and what a bummer. They're not. They're just part of this rest of the world and like takes away from our particularistic Jewish value. Like that's not what we're trying to send the message of. I actually think that the Jewish months are Jewish months, regardless of the fact that they came from an outside source. And and more than that, that empowers me, that excites me, that adds to the holiness. It doesn't take it away because it means that a particular set of people living in Babylon, they were immersed in a culture, found a little piece of it, and they took it and they made it Jewish. And that means that it can be done. And and one piece that we've talked about over and over these past few weeks is that we get to Jewify stuff. We absolutely can and have and should Jewify. Judaism has been continually strengthened. Dan Mendelssohn Aviv would argue it's continually been radically reshaped due to the wisdom that we gain from other societies, from quote unquote, secular societies, etc. So when we look to those Jews that we're talking about who are outside the institutions, they tend to be the ones that are more immersed in either alternative worlds. Maybe they're in an interfaith relationship and they're in, they're immersed in another religious culture. Maybe they're not and they're just 
very thoroughly engaged in American culture. But that means that they're the kind of people that can, for lack of a better analogy, create our next version of Jewish months. They are deeply engaged in the rest of society and they can bring in something that, sure, it'll feel weird to us. But as as Vanessa Oakes discussed in our conversation about the Bubby Talit, the, the Grandma Talis, Grandma Ritual Shawl, um, it'll feel very natural to our grandchildren and it will just be what Judaism always has been to them. Yeah, and I think this is a good opportunity to kind of try to lay something out that we haven't discussed specifically, which is this question of when you look backwards over your history, something can appear to be a direct straight line of evolution, let's say, when the reality is that if you were to like travel along that route, you would actually see these um, these periods of vast change and disruption and um, discontinuity. But if that discontinuous thing then starts to borrow pieces of the old thing, after some number of years, you might not realize that that the initial development was discontinuous. So let, let me actually give the most recent example that I can think of, which is Zionism. And here I'm not trying to get into the politics of it. I'm just trying to get into the historical description of the emergence of, of Zionism. So in the late 19th century, when Zionism first came onto the Jewish scene, political Zionism, it was a movement by led by a secular Jew, Theodor Herzl, which was not um, religious in nature. And sure, there were some religious people who um, were behind the Zionist movement, but actually not that many. Um, in retrospect, they're talked about more than their influence was at the time. And in fact, both the, let's call it Orthodox world and the Reform world were not in favor of political Zionism, right, of the, the attempt to build a Jewish state and opposed it. Now, if you look at the both the Orthodox and the Reform movement today, they're ve very committed to Zionism. And you ask yourselves, well, well, how did that happen? And if you're looking at that from the perspective even of now, much less 100 years from now, you would kind of look at that and say, as I think the kind of mythic approach already is, hey, look, we've always had in our liturgy these aspirations to go back to Israel and to rebuild the Jewish community in Israel and yada, yada, yada. And in the 1800s, there began for various reasons to be a sense that we really need to take that into our own hands. And so we did. And now, you know, there's a Jewish state and it's this like continual line. But that continual line neglects the reality that, you know, from the late 19th century through the, the period of the Holocaust, the religious movements were for the most part against Zionism. And I think this is the par part that I think is important in terms of the story is that the Zionist enterprise continued unabated through that whole period, right? The Zionist enterprise didn't need the support of the Orthodox world and the Reform world and, and the religious Jewish world in order to do what it was doing, right? They um, created these secular kibbutzes and, uh, you know, a whole sort of secular approach. And when the time came that the UN made a resolution to create a Jewish state, they kind of had gotten the pieces into place and were ready for it. And none of that really had the um, input 
of the old Jewish world, so to speak, right? The continuous Jewish world, the continuous religious Jewish world. Now, after it happened, and somewhat because of the Holocaust and because of a sort of a change of understanding of, you know, the situation of the Jews, and for all kinds of reasons that may be good reasons, maybe bad reasons, it doesn't matter. The point that we're talking about is a historical one where the religious world changed its views about Zionism. And 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 got on board. And now we look at it and we see, you know, Israel at the very center of the, the sort of religious conception of, of Judaism. Now, what I want to say about that is that what happened is not that those religious organizations um, sort of took Zionism into their self-definitions, because it's more than that. Zionism in Israel is now at the center of their self-definitions. So I think what what it's more, it's better to understand is that rather than saying that Zionism came into the orbit of those Jewish uh, organizations, it's more that those Jewish organizations came into the orbit of Zionism. Essentially, Zionism started to pull in religion into into Zionism, and so right, and so you start to see Israel become more religious and whatever. And there's a lot of history that we can get into, but fundamentally, the the pattern of history that I want to look at is to say that it was actually Zionism was a discontinuous innovation, but because ultimately it pulled in the dimensions of the old Judaism into its orbit, looked at from the other side, it looks like it was a continuous innovation. A lot of people think that it was a continuous innovation. And we're only a few, you know, we're only a few decades into it, much less hundreds of years. So I think that that's probably equally true when we look at all kinds of other developments in Jewish history in the past. And and the significance of that looking forward is that I think it really puts the lie to the idea that something dramatic couldn't happen among American Jews who are living outside of the main institutions of Jewish life. And that, you know, that thing could develop and grow over 50 years, over 100 years. And eventually, maybe they would look at the old religious Jewish world, you know, and start to say, hey, we like this and we like this and we like that. And they start to pull it together, you know, and it actually ends up maybe not that different. It's But it's different enough that it was able to gain the resonance of all those people who were disconnected from it and looked at from, you know, hundreds of years later, it looks like it was this continuous process. It comes back to a very simple quote that Rabbi B'nai Lappi stated when she was on our show, which is that Judaism in 100 years is going to look fundamentally differently than it does now. And that doesn't scare me. That's the key part of her quote. And the reason that it doesn't scare her, and uh, or maybe I'll speak for myself, the reason it doesn't scare me that Judaism will look fundamentally different in 100 years is that we would be in a horrible situation if it didn't look differently. As you discussed, the Zionism at the core of our of our Jewish world now in Israel and in the US. I don't know if people 100 years ago, 120 years ago would have condemned that, would have celebrated that. Like, like they wouldn't have ever thought about it. Like the, the idea of a Judaism for so many people with Zionism at its core, like it it just wouldn't have crossed people's minds, whether it's a good thing, a bad thing, a middle thing. And if you look in the early 1900s, if you look at what the reform movement had already become. It was in many ways the strongest movement in the United States in the early 1900s. When when people who weren't Jewish looked at Jews, they probably thought of reform Jews as what Jewish was. If you asked their 150-year predecessors in the mid-18th century to, to understand a Judaism based on largely on organ playing in in a in a worship setting with pews and 
And even the denomination itself of Reformed Judaism, there were no denominations before the 1800s. Like that would have made no sense to them. These radical shifts that we're talking about really do happen. It's not that we're just pushing a, a, a metaphor to its brink and, and bringing these questions to the forefront because we want change to happen to our community. We, we do happen to want that change to happen because we think it will benefit Judaism, but it, it's just how the Jewish past has happened century after century after century. And if we don't recognize that, if we don't internalize the fact that Judaism does always look not just a little different, but fundamentally different every 100 years, 200 years, then we lose control over shaping the direction that that will be. It means that what happens will sort of be happenstance. It won't be conscious. It won't be shaped. And I desperately want us to be able to shape it. I want it. I want Judaism in 2150 to be awesome because we've had some sort of vision about what that awesomeness will be and not just because we lucked into it. Today, we need to fundamentally come to terms with the fact that we are doing Judaism differently and, and that's good and it will be good for Judaism in a hundred years and 500 years. Well, maybe that's actually, I, I wonder whether that's one of the, ways in which our current times are profoundly different from past times. I don't I don't know, right? Because I I I think that um today, right, one of the things that we talked about earlier on was this idea that the Enlightenment is a major factor in the uh reason why there's a crash going on in in Judaism. And um, you know, I, I think that the the way that I see the Enlightenment or part of the way that the Enlightenment plays in is that the everyday Jew today is much more highly educated in terms of non-Jewish realms than the average Jew was at various other previous points of Jewish change. In some ways, I think today there really aren't a whole lot of uh, poor, uneducated Jews in the world, uh, or certainly not in America. And um, so I think the idea that there's going to be some kind of uh, new Jewish movement that's going to largely um, attract the poor and uneducated Jews, uh, that might, if, if that's the only way that Judaism changes in, in profound ways, then we might have a serious problem. So I think that one of the ways in which our times might be different is that we're looking at a population of Jews that are actually quite wealthy and quite well-educated in terms of non-Jewish realms. And that if there is to be a major change in, in Judaism, it will be in a world of Jews like that. And if so, then it may be the case that it's no longer enough for just the elites to know that they're making a change. I would take issue with the um, claim that the elites, like the leaders of previous Jewish changes, whether we're talking about the early rabbis or the um, early Hasids or the early Zionists, that they didn't know that they were making profound changes. I, I would assert that I think that they did know. The question is whether their followers knew or not. Um, in our times, I think that it would have to be both the leaders and the followers who would really have to understand in a deep way that what is going on is is quite a discontinuous change from the weight of where the Jewish institutions are. By the way, I think it also probably makes it easier to make those kind of changes when there has been a destruction of the old institutions, uh, such as the destruction of the Second Temple, 
uh, which made rabbinic Judaism, I think, sort of come about in a more accelerated manner, or the Holocaust, which made the state of Israel come about in a more accelerated manner. Again, I really hope that we don't have any destructions. So therefore, we're looking at a situation where there hasn't been a destruction, and we have a highly educated, highly sophisticated population. And so in that in that sense, I think we may be looking at something rather new, right? We may be really looking at this question of, is it possible to have a major Jewish change that fundamentally comes about through an empowered Jewish lay population. I agree with a lot of what you just said. I do want to bring up a little bit of a disagreement with what you talked about with respect to wealth and and like the wealth of the American Jewish community and sort of what we what we can expect in terms of the demographics economically of the Jewish community. Because I think that as we approach the question of sort of the Jewish institutional community and those who are not involved with the community, I think there is a high correlation between those who are involved in a deep way with the Jewish institutions and those who have a lot of money. I, I, I think that there it is often those Jews who are not economically upper class, upper middle class who are precisely the ones that are boxed out for a variety of reasons. I mean, we could, we could guess all sorts of them, but I, but I think that that's actually an important piece that maybe we can wrestle with in the future because I, I've actually come across a lot of people for whom the primary obstacle to engagement with the Jewish community was, was wealth. Maybe not like, the the money it took to be a member of a synagogue sometimes that's the case because those prices are pretty high but that's not necessarily what i mean it's more just the general social reality of the spaces that we create in the jewish community and the feeling that sort of everybody in the room is in a certain economic space and i think we underestimate the percentage of the jewish community who is not in that space largely because the people who are not in those realms economically are the ones that aren't coming to the institutions that we have. Um, I don't bring that up because I think it was a strong point you were making in opposition to me, but I, th- I think it just came to light in re- with respect to what you were talking about in terms of wealth. Oh, fair enough. I, I, first of all, for sure that's true of young people, right, who um, simply don't yet have enough uh, personal wealth or don't have as much personal wealth as the people that are highly involved or driving in leadership roles of of the Jewish community. So we could look at it as a generational thing in that sense, but you're right. I mean, there's also, and and my point is that it's not that um, all Jews are wealthy. My point is more that few Jews are poor uh, in America. And, um, um, and I, and I, and so I, I think, and, and, and more importantly than wealth, uh, the point that I was really focusing on more was education. And I think that the demographic studies indicate, especially when, right, to the extent that there are poor and uneducated Jews, they actually tend to be the most religious, the ultra-Orthodox that fall into that category. I think that if you remove the ultra-Orthodox, uh, from the Jewish demographic studies, you, you find, and again, there, of course, there are exceptions, but you find that as a group, Jews are relatively solidly middle class and um, and highly educated. By the way, even in biblical history, uh, when the Jews return from Babylonia, to, you know, in the, when Ezra uh, returns from Babylonia, sort of uh, while the Second Temple is being built, uh, one of his innovations is to have a public 
reading of the Torah, um, you know, which we still do, Jews still do on Shabbat. But um, why was there a public reading of the Torah at that time? It's because the people were illiterate. Um, and the only way that they would be able to know what was in the Torah was if somebody read to them. And actually, I really, you know, come back to what we talked about, um, I, you know, I think in episode four, when, or when we were really trying to get our minds around, well, what is the nature of the crash that we're experiencing today? And I, and I think that part of it really does come from the fact that the Jews are profoundly different today than they were in previous times and in the, and in the last, uh, most of the last 2000 years of Jewish history that they, um, are, are pr a profoundly educated and sophisticated people in a way that the Jews, the everyday Jews weren't before. Certainly elites were, but that you sort of can expect your everyday Jew to be a highly educated, sophisticated person is a relatively new phenomenon post enlightenment. And so, um, I think that that's something that we have to get our get our mind around. Whatever the wealth of a particular American Jew today, um, I think it's I think that we need to respect that American Jew is what I'm saying, right? To respect that person as a sophisticated thinker, probably a highly educated, sophisticated thinker, but nevertheless, somebody who's very uh, deeply ensconced in a lot of big ideas about what it means to be an American, what it means to be a human being, value systems that come uh, from outside of Judaism, and that the only question is really how Jewishly educated is that person in terms of the Jewish education of the Judaism that has come before. And that that is the, the question. And then the question becomes, is it only people who are Jewishly educated that in a way have a right to be, as B'nai Lapi calls it, the players who are reshaping Judaism? And, um, you know, I... I raise questions about that for two reasons. One is that I, I think that Vanessa Oakes talked about how it may be in certain cases that somebody who has too much education, and we talked about this too uh, in our knowledge versus chutzpah curve discussion, that at a certain point you have too much education, you sort of start to be limited in your creativity um, because you you kind of know too much. and you're So if we really need to have creativity, it may be that in many cases it's the less educated people that are going to be creative enough. So that's number one. And number two is that um, I really think like if we look back in Jewish history and we see that we've imported a lot of things over the years from other uh, traditions and other peoples that actually, you know, somebody who's educated in an area that comes from outside of Judaism and who's actually sort of trying to bring their thinking into Judaism is potentially bringing in a thinking that is going to ultimately be able to make Judaism more relevant to the people for whom it's not relevant today. So you talked about where the creative energy comes from. And when I think creativity and Judaism, I, I think that our first examples that we have written, that we have discussion of in any holy text anywhere else, is of the folks who constructed the tabernacle in the Torah. All sorts of intricate, really, art, was put into, I mean, there were all sorts of materials that the Torah discusses and beautiful, beautiful, uh, gems and stones that were utilized and all these things. And the two people who did it, who were in charge of this process were Bitsalel and Aholiav. We know that they're basically not mentioned outside of the context of building the tabernacle. And there are some interesting commentaries about them. One is that Bitsalel was 13 years old. 
That's what the Talmud thinks. The head of this entire operation was a 13-year-old. And the other thing that we do know about Aholia from the text is that he was from the tribe of Dan, which is sort of one of the lowliest tribes without that much prestige, not much of a role in the text in a lot of concrete ways. And these were the two guys that were put in charge of the creativity that was required to construct the tabernacle. I think we can learn a lot from that. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't Aaron. they, They give it to somebody else because Moses and Aaron are sort of managing the institutionalized structures that exist. Aaron's focusing on the priesthood, et cetera. Um, it wasn't the priests who put together the tabernacle, even though they're the ones that were going to do the service there. It was these, it was this youngster, um, if you trust the Talmud's commentary, and a guy from the lowly tribe of Don. Um, and I think that we in the Jewish community would benefit if we look for creative sources outside of, you know, our own centralized structures, the, the Moses and Aaron's of our time, which might be, you know, our federations, our synagogues, our JCCs, et cetera. Um, I, I wanted to also connect because this is our Deuteronomy episode. I wanted to think about the role of Deuteronomy in the Tanakh and segue into, into what the rest of our podcast will be. Um, and give our viewers a little taste of what it will look like in the future. Because Deuteronomy, as much as it's the last book of the Torah, is actually kind of a beginning. We know this both from, from source criticism, which holds that the source D starts with Deuteronomy and continues through a number of the following books, and because the text itself doesn't describe sort of a finish other than Moshe, Moshe dying. Um, the actual, like, like, they don't enter the land of Israel till the book of Joshua, which comes afterwards. Deuteronomy is both an ending and a beginning. And so this episode is sort of our bridge between the first 10 episodes that we've had and all that will come later. So, Dan, I'm curious if you can give us a brief summary of where we are so far in our podcast series. Yeah. Well, I, I think that just to more or less summarize our lens, I mean, I, I think the sort of important points that that we're coming into this with is saying um, there has been a break from the organized Jewish community and its version of Judaism that it's presenting, and the people are voting by exit, and that that exit shouldn't be interpreted as an abandonment of Judaism, and that demographic studies don't indicate that it is, that our history doesn't indicate that it is in previous times, and that uh, B'nai Lappi's conception of option three and recovering from a crash is is alive. And that we see that for various institutional reasons that those changes are not likely to come from within the institutions. They might, and I hope that on a future episode we'll explore how they could be. Um, but that for the most part, what we're imagining is needed and what we hope to accelerate is a process of research and development, essentially, experimentation in the world outside of Jewish institutions by and for people who have voted in some way by exit or who have voted by partial exit. And that we 
think that a lot of small experiments are likely to, at some point, something is likely to catch on and grow. And this is where um, I think after we talked to, or while we were talking to Barack Richmond, I think I uh, mentioned the idea of the remnant, right? That in our mythology, we have this idea of the remnant, the She'erit, and that Judaism will get smaller before it gets bigger. And that that same concept comes from the best business literature about business turnarounds, right? Like if you're turning around a business, you have to get smaller before you get bigger. So um, I think that, by the way, the institute, Jewish institutional world is going to get smaller before it, it gets gets bigger. And the question is, is it going to get bigger? And, and I don't want to say that it won't, right? Meaning, like, I actually think that one of the experiments that we're running today is whether the world of, of Jewish institutions as we have them uh, more or less today can uh, find a way to resonate and succeed. And I want to put out ultra-Orthodox Judaism as at least one example of that happening. Um, and we can classify it in different ways, option three, option one, you know, whatever. But the point is, is that they uh, did come up with a new approach to Judaism that um, in many ways um, characterizes itself as an old approach, uh, but is nevertheless a very conservative, a relatively conservative traditional approach. And by finding the innovation of a high birth rate, they're able to uh, grow, even though they actually have quite a large uh, group of people that are continually leaving, but their uh, birth rate is higher than their leaving rate, and so therefore they're able to grow. So that's a great example of a small movement that became bigger, as is Zionism. And, and I do want to say one thing about Zionism, just to make sure that our listeners aren't mishearing us. Uh, we're using it as an example. We're not trying to take a political stance on Zionism, certainly not at this stage, one way or the other. Um, we're simply talking about it at this stage as an example of a new Jewish movement that really did catch on and, and grow and resonate. And I would add one other, one thing, though, that given the that Zionism is an innovation, that I think that the um, idea that when we look at people that are, are not Zionist for one reason or another, uh, and we essentially call them un-Jewish or anti-Jewish in some way, that we should be careful about that because it actually is a relatively new innovation. And, and so you could call it all kinds of things, but uh, I'm not sure that it needs to be seen as uh, un-Jewish. Um, if, you're, if you're looking at Judaism as the sweep of history, then you see that things wax and wane all the time. When we look forward in this podcast, I think we want to look at it in the following way. What this podcast is about is fundamentally framed by this idea of ipchamistabra, opposite thinking, the idea that we want to put out a perspective on Jewish change that may or may not be right. We think it's pretty much right. Although this is a podcast and we're trying to think out loud. The whole point of a podcast is to allow yourself to just think and explore ideas and not necessarily to write an essay where you're committing yourself to a particular idea. But the basic idea that we're exploring here, which we think is healthy to consider, even if you don't agree with it, simply on the level of that it's important to have a variety of ideas on the table, is that the future of Judaism will come fundamentally and at the end from some innovations that take place outside of the Jewish institutional world today. That doesn't mean that the Jewish institutional world today is not important. It's important in at least two ways. One is that it might be the one that ultimately takes off. It could happen. I don't think so, but it could happen. And number two is that in the interim, until some other new approach does emerge from the world outside the institutional Jewish world, 
um, it's it's keeping a lot of people connected to, to Judaism, and that's a good thing. So we're in no way opposed to the Jewish institutional world staying successful. We really hope that it will be. But what we're trying to put out in this podcast is the idea that in that world of Jewish life that takes place outside of the existing Jewish institutions, that many different experiments ought to be run and supported in that world and that are already being run and supported in that world to some extent. But we hope that there'll be more experiments and that they'll be more supported. Yeah, Dan, thanks for summarizing that. I think that's a really good encapsulation of our first 10 episodes. And so I want to look forward a little bit at what's coming up, too. We have been so excited at the results we've had so far with our podcasts. Um, we we want to do so much in our coming episodes, but there's only so much that we can accomplish. So one, one piece we've been talking about is how can we get voices, both of more of our experts, like the folks that we've been, been bringing on recently, and how we can balance that out with some regular Jews as well. And so for our next few, we're still going to be focused primarily on those who are either scholars or practitioners of Judaism in sort of a professional sense. But Long term, we're also going to be supplementing those with some voices of just everyday kinds of Jews. Yeah, I want to make it clear to our listeners that we're really struggling with this. I mean, when we started the podcast, we had this idea that we were going to talk about, um, we were going to talk to some experts and some practitioners and some scholars and some regular Jews. And then as we've been doing this podcast, we've realized that putting up a new episode once a week really makes it hard to get everything in there that we want to get in and really explore things in depth. So we're really struggling with that. We have uh, for the next few weeks, months, we have uh, a bunch of blocks of episodes looking at uh, particular areas that we think are especially important. But most of the people that we're interviewing are scholars or leading practitioners. And we're really trying to figure out how we can bring regular Jews into the conversation. And we love your feedback on that, listeners. We're trying to think about whether we might even release a second episode each week with um, a regular Jew interview every once in a while uh, or something like that. A problem that we're struggling and running up against is our own limited time and capacity to record and edit all the episodes. So we want to share with you that we're really trying our best to figure out how to make this the most valuable conversation that we can. And we'd love to get your feedback on how to do that. I'd echo that. It's been both a blessing and a challenge, the success that we've had so far in welcoming these guests. And it's brought up some important questions like the ones that Dan is mentioning. Um, just in case folks are curious about the podcast and and sort of what what role we've been playing in the Jewish ecosystem. We we didn't really know what this was going to do at first. We didn't have any sense of how big our listener base would be or anything like that. But we've been incredibly excited at the response we've gotten. So first off, to all of our listeners who have sent us emails, Facebook messages, etc., we really appreciate all of them. And, and we genuinely listen and talk, the two of us, about how we can incorporate your feedback. So keep that coming. Um, in terms of some stats... We are privileged to say that we've had over 2,500 listeners just in the month of April as we record this. And, and that's and we're halfway through the month of April, by the way, so that, that should increase even more. And uh, um, our Facebook likes and, and conversations have been really strong. And, and we thank everyone for, for giving us a like on Facebook. Um, I want to say that on iTunes, 
we've noticed that whenever we get positive reviews, it really helps our visibility and it brings us new subscribers. So please, by all means, if you like what we've been doing, give us a strong recommendation on iTunes. We love those five-star ratings, especially, of course. But uh, it helps spread knowledge of our Judaism Unbowed podcast. And we're now available on Google Play as well. They just made podcasts a part of their Google Play music feature. So yeah, I just want to echo that uh, request for five-star ratings on iTunes and uh, whatever you do analogously on Google Play. We're really excited to be in the Google universe. Um, and um, I also would want to put out at this point a, uh, a gentle request for donations that anybody would like to make to support our podcast or our capacity to do more podcasts. We have uh, some ideas in the works for completely additional podcasts and also for being able to put out more episodes of the Judaism Unbound podcast. So anything you can donate by going to our website, JudaismUnbound.com and clicking on the donate page would be extremely welcome, and we'd be so grateful for that. Um, now, I want to shift to talk a little bit about the next group of episodes. Uh, Lex, you talked earlier about the book of Joshua as the next uh, segment of the Bible story. And while we actually didn't plan to continue this framing with the biblical architecture, it does uh, turn out that our next block of episodes that we're doing has to do with the Jewish experience in America. And I think you could kind of analogize that to the book of Joshua and the idea that a people is coming into a new land and then has to sort of sort out how it continues to build upon what it was in that new land. And so our next block of episodes is going to begin with interviews with three really terrific uh, people. Uh, Jonathan Sarna, professor at Brandeis University. Anita Diamond, a well-known author, uh, especially of the book The Red Tent. And Professor Shaul Magid of Indiana University. And I think it's particularly interesting that Professor Sarna has written a book called American Judaism, and Professor Magid has written a book called American Post-Judaism. So maybe Anita Diamond will help us sort all of this out. But we think that it'll be a really interesting series of interviews. And then in the fourth episode, Lex and I will come back to discuss and try to put the pieces together as we've been doing before. And we think that that's going to be our format moving forward, that we'll have... Um, not just alternating episodes with an interview and then Lex and me having a conversation, but more that we'll have one or two or three uh, interviews in a row. And then Lex and I will try to put all of those pieces together and continue to integrate what we're learning from talking to various people into the larger picture that we're trying to paint. And I think that with that, we are excited to have come to the end of our 10th episode and our 10-episode series of uh, introduction to this podcast. Um, it turns out that this podcast is being posted on the evening of Passover, and so we want to wish all of our listeners a very happy Passover and hope that maybe this podcast will in some way contribute to a sense of liberation this year, a sense of liberation from ideas that might have been holding back your vision of what Judaism is or might become. And, and so we really hope that uh, the year that uh, we're going into is a year of liberation and a year of free thinking and all sorts of uh, interesting new ideas for the Jewish community. This has been Judaism Unbound.